Hello, readers. It's now time for part two of my chat with Richard J. Johnson, MD, on his new book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, The Surprising Science Behind Why We Gain Weight and How We Can Prevent and Reverse It. If you haven't already listened to part one, go do that first. So part two makes a little bit more sense. Now, part two of my chat with Dr. Rick Johnson. So, Rick, uh, it's obviously so important to talk about the perils of sugar and fructose consumption so that we understand what we're working with here. But it's also pretty depressing, too, as you've already talked about. Uh, consuming sugar and fructose makes you crave more of those types of foods. So it turns into a vicious cycle. And sugar is also super addictive, too. I'm somebody who has cut down or cut out uh, a lot of different things in my life over time. And I got to say, sugar provides physical withdrawals that are on par with cigarette smoking and uh, then also with cutting out caffeine for an extended period of time too. So it is really hard once you get into that cycle to cut it out altogether. And not just that, but it can really have an impact on our overall mental health as well. For instance, how can fructose consumption and the survival switch uh, really further exasperate problems like ADHD? Yeah, it's really true. Yeah, you're totally right, uh, Trey. Um, sugar is really addictive. Um, not for everybody, but for a lot of us. Um, and it probably relates a little bit to our genetics and our background and how we were raised. I have to say, I love sugar, uh, you know, yeah. in terms of uh, when I was, you know, until I started studying it and realized how bad it was. But gosh, <laughs> it's very hard for me to turn away a piece of chocolate cake, you know. Especially uh, this time and, of year. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I struggle with it and I... Uh, you know, I'm hoping one day that, you know, we'll have ways to help people to uh, control their craving. There are, there are a lot of techniques out there and a low carb diet is one that's, uh, you know, you, you go through kind of a withdrawal, as you said, but eventually the craving does reduce it, like in the second week on a low carb diet. And, yep. and you know, uh, there are all these tricks people do, you know, drink a lot of water and do all these things, but it is hard. Uh, and um, I, I can't blame anyone if they steal a chocolate here and there because uh, it's pretty hard not to. Everything uh, having said this, um, you know, some of these tricks that we're talking about, you know, which is, you know, drinking a lot of water, not eating as much salt, um, you know, really trying to reduce the high glycemic carbs, the potatoes and do, you know, and the rice, these are all things that can help reduce activating the switch. And there are a lot of tricks, you know, intermittent fasting, low carb diets and Mediterranean diets. There's a lot of things you can do. One of the, uh, the newest areas of research for my group has been just this comment you made about how fructose can all, is doing all kinds of things to our brain. And, um, uh, Yes, it definitely stimulates uh, craving and dopamine responses. Um, and that I think everyone was well aware of. But it also, you know, stimulates foraging. And, uh, you know, I, I, there are a lot of uh, teachers and parents who will tell you that when their kids eat sugar, they become hyperactive for short periods of time. And, um, and that, you know, they... And I've seen this in my kids, 
Um, and, uh, and, and clearly there is this uh, relationship. It's been hard to show uh, scientifically, but uh, they, it turns out that the designs of those studies probably wasn't done right. And we can talk about that, but um, our, our works really suggest that it does cause a foraging response. And uh, recently there's been a special test done where they do imaging of the brain. And when you image the brain and you give someone fructose, uh, you'll actually activate foraging responses. And you can show that by uh, uh, where certain areas of the brain light up or, 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 or where the activity is reduced. And it turns out that to forage um, is when you're foraging, you're looking for food. And it's an actual behavior where you kind of have to move rapidly because animals that are foraging, they have to go into areas where they don't, they, they may not know the area well, but they just got to find the food because things potentially could be desperate. And so they have to have exploratory behavior. They have to be impulsive. They can't deliberate on any one area. They can't concentrate on one area too long because they have to be looking around everywhere. And, and you can realize that that's sort of like what ADHD is. And it's sort of like what scouts do. It's it, it, in some respects, it's a, a wonderful behavior in the sense that you're exploratory, you're going into new areas, you're like an adventurer, right? Um, and so it has some benefits, uh, especially if you're, you know, exploring new territories, you'd like to be like that. But if, if it's an overdrive for a long, long time, what happens is you have trouble concentrating because you're constantly looking around, you're constantly fidgeting, constantly wandering. And so you can actually show this in animals that you can take them into these kind of uh, where they jump more and they, they do all these things initially. Um, and, uh, and, but what's happening is, is it's, uh, it's all being driven by neurologic pathways. And what happens is that, that to, when you forage, you stimulate certain regions of the brain, but you actually inhibit other areas, for example, involved in control and self-control mm. and deliberation and, 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 when that's chronically activated that way, chronically uh, inhibiting those self-control areas and so forth, we believe that it, it's a real risk factor for things like uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. It's, uh, and it's a risk factor for other behavioral problems. Gambling, for example, can be linked with, these, uh, with this kind of uh, biology. And, and and then what's even scarier, and uh, we're are going to be publishing a paper on this very soon, is that there's uh, when you chronically you know inhibit the areas of self control and of recent memory, we believe that it can lead to neuronal death uh, and an increased risk for dementia in the in the long term. You know, so over fifty years or sixty years of of this kind of severe diet in, in susceptible people, it may actually be playing a role in the development of Alzheimer's. And um, if you give fructose for 18 months, uh, or is it, I'm sorry, it's 18 weeks to a rat, you can actually show a lot of the same kind of biology in their brain as you see with Alzheimer's. They get a little bit of amyloid and 
tau protein and and their neurons start to atrophy and they have trouble walking through a maze and they show some of the same signs that uh, Alzheimer's patients show. And if you actually, uh, a study showed that patients with Alzheimer's have high fructose levels in their brain. Mm. And so the fructose levels are high and we think that it's uh, being produced there. It's not just uh, coming from the diet and foods like uh, high glycemic carbs and stuff can increase fructose production in the brain. So I, I think that uh, what's coming out is that this biologic switch is a lot more important than we had thought. And I mean, it's not just, it's not just obesity and diabetes. It's actually playing a role in a lot of very important diseases. And um, I actually think it's a, the root cause of Alzheimer's and, um, you know, and, and so, you know, for a long time, it was known that the earliest uh, changes in Alzheimer's is what is uh, what we call insulin resistance of the brain mm. and um, and mitochondrial problems in the brain. And guess what those mitochondrial problems are? It's the same oxidative stress to the mitochondria that fructose does. And guess what the insulin resistance is? When I give give fructose to animals to fructose to animals, they develop <laughs> insulin resistance in the brain. So, uh, you know, suddenly it, the story just gets stronger and stronger. And, uh, you know, the areas of the brain in Alzheimer's that um, are affected first are the areas that are affected by where fructose inhibits the activity, like the hippocampus and the cortex. And so it turns out that uh, whereas the areas where, where brain activity is maintained for foraging, those are the areas that are spared in Alzheimer's. So that it really does look like uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, uh, is very much linked to the biologic switch and that there's a real problem with overactivation of our switch. And uh, so that's why I wrote this book because, you know, it's pretty important. And, um, you know, maybe, and, and a lot of, you know, these empiric diets that are out there like low carb diets, they, you can show why they work. And, uh, and, and, and then you can improve on them too. So you can, you know, with the, you know, the addition of, you know, the importance of water and to restrict salt and some of these other things that came out. Uh, so, so that's why I, that's why I wrote this book and I'm hoping that will help, help people. I think it will. And part of that is because you lay things pretty plainly, like it's hard to limit your sugar and fructose consumption. When you consider that 70% of packaged foods contain fructose, glucose, <laughs> or some combination of the two, more than three fourths of all foods we consume contain caloric sweeteners. According to the American Heart Association, the average person takes in 22 teaspoons of added sugars each day, which is more than three times what the WHO recommends for men and even higher percentage of that for women as well. But that's why it's important to talk about these things to hopefully then help arm that individual who's listening to this podcast right now or who ends up uh, buying and reading your book about the ways that you can better combat these things. For instance, you answer uh, a bunch of different questions because in chapter eight, uh, where you answer eight different questions, common questions asked about sugar consumption, for which one of is, does it make a difference between eating versus drinking your glucose or uh, your added sugars rather? Now you talked about this a little bit with regards uh, to hydration with soft drinks, but how much of a difference does it make consuming sugar and or fructose 
through drinks versus eating it as a part of a food? Yeah, liquid sugars are dangerous because, and the reason is um, like if you drink a soft drink, the first reason is that there's a hell of a lot of sugar in the soft drink, you know? So part of it is just the amount, right? And that's sort of obvious that if it's just amount, then it shouldn't make a difference if it's a cake or a drink. But uh, the first problem with liquid drinks is that there's, there's often a high amount of sugar in it, okay? Not all of those, like some sports drinks don't have as much sugar, but, but anyway, so one part is the amount, but the other reason and the reason why liquids are so worse than solids is because they're absorbed faster. So if you, if you drink uh, a soft drink, you're going to get this big load of, of sugar in a very short time. A lot of people will guzzle a drink, you know, they'll drink it out on the tennis court or something and just down a 16 ounce drink in just a few minutes. It's very easy to, to drink a glass of soft, you know, to drink, to drink a soft drink fast. And then, you know, a lot of these places, they have free refills before you know it, you've had like two or three of them, right? Well, the way the switch works, it, it's working inside the cell and it's mainly in the liver. And so when you, when you eat food, it gets uh, absorbed through the intestine and then it gets to the liver. And so if you take a huge slug in a short period of time, the concentration of fructose that hits the liver is really high because you're eating a lot and you're taking it in a very short time. So it gets absorbed all at once. And when that happens, the concentration is high. And the way the, that fall in ATP occurs that activates the switch is it relates to the concentration of fructose. It's like a, it's like a dimmer switch. So if you eat a little bit of sugar and that ATP level falls 5%, you may be triggering the switch a tiny bit, but it's very, very little. But if you hit it with a big slug of sugar, that of fructose, and then the, the, uh, the ATP may drop 40%, you know, it'll drop in half maybe. And the farther it falls or the more steep, uh, uh, it drops the farther down it goes the more it will activate this biologic switch so we did a, a study in people where we gave apple juice which is sort of like a soft drink it's very concentrated you know it's got a lot of sugar in it a lot of fructose in it and if we gave it over an hour versus over 10 minutes there was a huge difference in the biologic response and um, and this has been shown in the literature too. Like uh, one group compared a soft drink to jelly beans. You'd think they would be the same, but it, you know the jelly beans. You know you have to kind of uh, break it up in your intestine. You have to digest the the gelatin. It takes a while, and then the sugar comes out. But if you the soft drink, it's like wow, <laughs> it's it's ready to be absorbed immediately. And so uh, they did a study uh, comparing, the, you know, eating the exact same amount of sugar and uh, the soft drink wins in, 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 in its ability to induce problems. And I know that Rob Lustig views soft drinks like poison. Mm. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't call it poison, but I would say that uh, soft drinks are probably your number one uh, culprit. And um, now here's another thing, though. If you sip the soft drink really over hours, 
you probably would, it would probably just be like a calorie because you would never get enough fructose. I mean, if you just took a sip every 10 minutes, but no one can do that. Yeah, so don't, don't even try it. Don't do it. Okay. But you, if you did, yeah, yeah. You're going to be finding that you're going to go back there sooner. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the other thing is like, uh, if you uh, eat sugar uh, between meals and, and it's basically a pure, sh you know, just all sugar, you're going to be absorbing more than, for example, uh, if you eat a big meal and then have a, a cookie at the end of the meal where you've got your intestines, got a lot of food in it, that and fiber, you, you may end up um, not absorbing it as rapidly. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a trick that people do and uh, I tried it because I, I have this thing called a continuous glucose monitor because I'm yeah. interested in what triggers, what foods make my glucose go up. I'm not diabetic, but I just want to know. I've eat done it. the same thing recently. It was so fascinating to learn more. Yeah, if I way. eat a piece of bread, you know, and I love bread, uh, my glucose will go up, right? And, uh, and, and it really makes a difference how much I eat. So if I eat a very small piece, it doesn't go up very much. And I feel that, you know, that's good news for me because I don't want to make fructose. But if I put an avocado spread on it, uh, it won't go up as much because the avocado is slowing the absorption. It's the same principle. It's the same principle. So the, the degree the glucose goes up is what triggers that switch to, you know, the, the conversion to fructose. So, so what's fantastic is, you know, once you kind of understand that there's a science behind it, you can, you can design your, your, you know, what you're eating, you know, to try to make it as safe as possible. And, uh, and, you know, so anyway, it's so funny you say that <laughs> about the toast versus the avocado toast, because I learned that same thing about myself. And there are certain foods that I've assumed for my entire life are healthy for me that I've found out that especially eating those things by themselves are not very good for me. They cause my blood sugar to skyrocket. Watermelon is on that list. Blueberries yeah. eaten by themselves cause oh, me wow. a huge issue. So I've had to learn to combine that with uh, a little bit of a unsweetened Greek yogurt, let's say, or something along those lines too. And speaking of fruits and vegetables, you do also answer the question in this chapter as to whether folks should worry about the sugar and fructose content in vegetables and fruits. With vegetables, even those vegetables that do have a little bit more fructose in them, like carrots and sweet peas, you say, no, not that big of a concern. But for fruit, it depends on the individual fruit and also the way that you are consuming that fruit. For instance, smoothies, Fruit juices, uh, fruits, fruit drinks and things like that are really not good for you. As far as the fruit juice thing concerns, as far as I've uh, always understood it, it's not only a matter of how many pieces of fruit it takes to get that much juice, but you're also losing out on a lot of fiber in the process. And that's yes. something that causes uh, the, the fructose and the sugar in that fruit to slow the whole breakdown process in your system. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. You know, with the, the studies that have been done on fruit, have not, they, they could be done, I think, better now that we know, understand the science more, or they should be repeated because there are probably some fruits, um, fruit juices that are probably okay. Um, and uh, for example, uh, kiwi, I don't think has that much fructose, but it does have tons of vitamin C. Mm. And my, my belief is that um, that might actually be a good fruit, you know? Um, and, uh, maybe fruit juice made with kiwi and lime and lemon, you, you know, 
it might be might be healthy. But in general, you know, when you order fruit juice, you're getting a, multiple fruits in one glass and and you're drinking it fast and there's not much fiber. And, you know, with the vegetables, uh, you know, originally I thought, gosh, you know, sweet potatoes, I'll never be able to eat a sweet potato again. <laughs> and um, and then a collaborator of mine did this really cool study where he found that the first uh the first amount of fructose you eat is kind of inactivated in the intestine. Mm. And it turns out it's about like four grams or so predicted to be in a human. He did this study in laboratory animals. But if we kind of carry over what he did, it suggests that like um, maybe the first four or five grams of fructose we eat isn't really going to activate the switch because it gets, um, it gets, uh, metabolizing the intestine before the food gets to the liver and it's oh. the liver where it's really important. And so uh, that made me realize that, you know, vegetables, most of these vegetables that have small amounts of fructose, it's in that range of three or four grams. And so it makes me think that, you know, we, we probably shouldn't, and, and vegetables have so many good things for them. It's just, it's, it's a shame if we couldn't eat them. Um, and if there's a, just a small amount of fructose, there's a very good chance it will be inactivated uh, in the intestine. Uh, you know, maybe if you ate a huge number of sweet potatoes, you might be in trouble. You know, uh, I, I, uh, I, I remember, that, you know, the, the one that I was most disappointed with was uh, oatmeal, how, how much it took my glucose up. And I, if I added a banana to it, which I always thought was healthy for years, I thought oatmeal and bananas were we're like healthy. And I found to my chagrin that it drove my glucose up a lot. Well, it depends on the oatmeal too, right? And I know yeah, you yes. out in the book, if you're talking about those instant oats, the ones that have been right. uh, ultra processed, then they're going to shoot through your system much more because it's uh, taking much less of that kernel of grain versus the steel cut or even better, the overnight oats. Yeah. Good man. You're, you're absolutely right. So uh, you look over the different diets and how they may or may not affect the survival switch. And it really ends with you uh, proposing a, a diet that you're a big fan of, the switch diet. And I'm not going to have you lay out the entirety of the switch diet. I think people need to buy the book to learn more about that. I did find it interesting that you are a big proponent of dairy. You don't always see that out of folks who are in this space. So what is it that's beneficial about dairy with regards to the survival switch? Yeah. So, so it turns out, you know, so um, I recognize that there are a lot of people out there who are concerned with dairy, especially with things like casein, uh, the dairy proteins. Um, I have to begin by saying that I have personally not studied the dairy that closely compared to, uh, you know, I've done many, many uh, experiments with fructose. I haven't studied dairy as much, but I can tell you that um, that uh, in the literature, um, dairy is actually uh, considered a wonderful uh, a food that tends, a food group that tends to lower uric acid. And um, it's been written about, it's been observed going all the way back to the 1700s that people with gout often do well when they eat dairy products. And there's some literature, not a huge amount, but there's some that suggest that um, that milk proteins and 
lactose and things like that may actually have a beneficial effect on the uric acid. Since I know that the uric acid is bad, um, you know, I, I, I kind of say, and, and there's also literature that dairy tends to be good on cardiovascular, especially low fat dairy on cardiovascular outcomes. And so I've kind of tied that together. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, so, you know, I'm willing to, to learn more about it, but, um, but certainly I, I, I have kind of followed that line of reasoning. By the end of this book, you propose some ways to, uh, help control or block that fat switch. And that includes exercise. I think if anybody is discounting uh, the importance of exercise and leading a healthy life, then uh, I'm not sure what to tell you there. But uh, interestingly, you go uh, in the opposite direction of how I typically feel about the best exercises for you. Now, I need to preface this by saying, look, if you are doing anything, that is better than nothing. So whatever works best for you and your life and your schedule, have at it, do more of that. But I've always been a bigger believer in uh, resistance training and weight training than I have steady state cardio. But you say for the sake of blocking that fat switch, you are a bigger proponent of an hour of steady state cardio, like getting on the treadmill, swimming or cycling over resistance and weight training. Why is this? Okay. So, um, so I do emphasize the exercise and cardio because that's been shown to have a, be a wonderful way to stimulate the mitochondria to repair themselves. Uh, and there's some beautiful work done by uh, Inigo Samalan, who's been a coach for uh, the Tour de France. Uh, and, you know, he's a physiologist that I, I, I very much value his judgment and his studies. And he's shown that this kind of exercise is really the way to optimize the mitochondria and make them healthy. And, and the switch is over time makes the mitochondria very unhealthy. And so I think that this exercise, um, this type of exercise is really important. Now, I didn't really emphasize the resistance exercise in my book, but um, as I, uh, I was recently at a meeting in uh, London on obesity, and I did hear some really very strong evidence that resistance exercise is also very good. Um, and I, it probably works a slightly different mechanism based upon what I was learning. And um, it turns out that lean body mass or mus muscle mass is really, really linked with uh, energy intake. And if you do develop uh, low muscle mass, you can't really eat very much without gaining weight. Mm -hmm. Having a good body mass not only is it good for, for how you feel and for your general health, but it, it probably can help, um, help you, uh, so, you know, so that you, a lot of people, when they're trying to lose weight, they find that they have to keep reducing their food intake uh, or they'll gain weight. But if you can increase your lean body mass, you will be able to eat more than you normally do without gaining weight. So it's really, uh, it's really helpful at that level as well, besides just feeling better. Uh, I do think all exercise is good, but, um, but you know, in terms of recover, making the mitochondria better, I think it's the, uh, you know, this uh, 45 minutes kind of zone two exercise is really good. And to make your muscle mass better, that's going to be good too. So I wish I had put a little more in, the, in my book on that. 
but um, but I agree with you. Exercise is critical for uh, long-term good health. And zone two is getting that heart rate to that 70% threshold. And you also chart how the obesity crisis really began uh, in this country and around the world in the late 1800s, which coincides with an increase in circuit consumption that started just a couple decades before that. And uh, the sugar consumption really accelerated in the early 1980s, late 70s, when high fructose corn syrup made it much cheaper to sweeten foods, processed foods especially, obviously. But sugar consumption actually peaked in this country right around 2000 and has gone down over the last 20 years or so. And so those who are detractors of sugar being this uh, uh, perilous consumable say, look, sugar consumption has gone down since 2000, but obesity has continued to rise. So clearly it's not sugar that's doing this. I disagree with that. You do as well. So why do you think that this is an incorrect, uh, an incorrect uh, assumption to make based on sugar consumption going down since the turn of the century? Yeah. So, uh, as it, well, there's many answers to that. Um, one is that fructose isn't just coming from added sugars. As we talked about, it's coming from high glycemic carbs. It's coming from junk food. It's coming from, uh, processed foods. Salt actually enhances it. And, uh, and so it isn't just soft drinks that's driving obesity. And it's really been the drop in soft drink intake since 2007. That's really most notable. In some countries, uh, sugar intake actually hasn't really dropped, but in the U.S. it has a little bit for sure. But, you know, there's a lot of other factors. Uh, we just published a paper on how the problem of underhydration is going on. That people aren't drinking enough water. Um, and so there's all these different factors. And we even are doing some studies with climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, even heat, we can actually activate the switch with heat stress and oh. we can make animals get fatty liver uh, uh, and so forth um, just by exposing them to heat. And it dramatically enhances the effects of sugar. So let's say you're drinking less sugar, but you're it's hotter and you're spending more time. You know, I mean, there, so there are these factors that can counter it. Um, and then there are some data, as you probably have seen, that in some areas of the world where sugar intake is beginning to drop, they can see obesity leveling off. Mm -hmm. And for a while, we thought obesity was leveling off in the U.S. for a while. It's not anymore. But um, but it's a very complex story. You know, there's a lot of things that are interacting here. Um, and the, the reality is that even though sugar intake is coming down, we're still eating 15 percent of our food as 15 to 17 percent of our food is added sugars. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're ex being exposed to a lot of fructose. And, you know, until I think the real proof will come when we can actually block fructose effects like with and just see what happens when, if you take a drug that blocks it, or if you look at people on a low carb diet, you can see a great benefit there too. Um, but I, you know, there's more to to know, and uh, I I I do want to stay open to all possibilities, and and uh, you know there may be other reasons, and but I do think the data really is strong that fructose can activate this switch. So. All right. Last question, Rick. How enjoyable was it getting to create the poem An Ode to Sugar that provides <laughs> the punctuation point at the end of this book? Oh, I, I, I was biking. 
I was biking out in the country and, and the, this poem came to me. The poem is really about how sugar is something that we all love and we thought was, you know, going to do wonderful things for us and bring love and Cupid and uh, romance and all these things. But actually, uh, it has a dark side, which is that it can really uh, be a problem for our health. And so, um, and so the poem came to me uh, and you know, I ended up, uh, I enjoyed writing the poem uh, and it sort of does summarize what what the book is about. <laughs> I think it does a great Did job of that. I may I may actually read it for my listeners once I uh, once I bid you adieu. I'm not going to put you on the spot by asking you to read it yourself, but I, I loved it. So I, I could, uh, okay, well, I could read it if you Okay, like. no, go ahead, go ahead. If you've got it in front of you, I'd love to hear, uh, hear uh, the office now. Let me see if I can find it here. Okay. Okay, here we go. An ode to sugar. From crushed cane comes a liquid sweet and clear, boiled and filtered until it's pure, yielding a virgin powder, soft and white, with crystals like snowflakes, like stars in the night. Sugar takes food to heavenly heights, fluffy pies, chocolate cakes, and caramel delights. Like fairies that dance with frosted wings, sugar brings pleasure happiness and dreams but woe to those who desire too much for they fall into trouble as from midas's touch what was driven by want is now forced by need what was given from love is now hoarded in greed what once satisfied the heart now takes from the soul what once brought love now leaves the heart cold with fury the body fights this dark force yet little can be done to stave off its cursed course the blood floods with sugar that rises to new heights. The heart becomes swollen, the liver creamy white. The teeth, once white, are rotten and stained. The kidneys are dusky, shriveled, and inflamed. Blood vessels are fatty and may close off or burst, causing weakness, paralysis, dementia, or worse. And Cupid's honeyed arrow that brought love and romance now pierces the heart with a sugar-tipped lance. Oh, sugar, my love, you must let me go and let me recover my heart and my soul. The sweet pain you gave me can no longer stay. Please give me the strength to turn you away. The sweetness of your lips I will forever adore. But to live my life, I need my health once more. That is just beautiful. He is Richard J. Johnson, MD. The new book is Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, The Surprising Science Behind Why We Gain Weight and How We Can Prevent and Reverse It. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Rick, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this important book. Thank you, Trey. It was absolutely great uh, to meet with you and I wish you the very best and happy holidays and try not to eat too much too much sugar over the next few weeks. Unfortunately, I cannot make that promise. Thank you so much, Rick. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.